Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In this third installment of our study of the life of the Apostle Paul, Dale South, small groups pastor at the chapel, walks us through God's calling of Barnabas and Saul, as well as what happened on their very first stop on their first missionary journey on the island of Cyprus. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12 as we continue to learn how to imitate Paul as he imitated Jesus Christ. Good morning, brothers. I am encouraged to be with you here this morning, and I'm also, again, as as you go to handle the Word of God, there is this little bit of fear and trepidation sometimes that comes along with that, because this Word of God can bring such comfort and reassurance, but it can also bring affliction and challenge us. And this is one of the beautiful things about the Scriptures and and God's grace, that, that He confronts us with His truth, and He has so much grace and mercy all around that that it doesn't need to scare us off, but it can actually draw us near. So this morning we're going to pick up, as Hunter said, in the last verse of uh, chapter 12 of the book of Acts. By now, uh, the church in Antioch has been established. Um, Barnabas has gone and he's recruited Saul to come there to be a part of it. There's been a prophet who's come and said, there's going to be a famine in all the land. So this, this church in Antioch, has um, collected an offering, and they've taken it to Jerusalem and and left it off. And there's where we're going to kind of pick up, that being the the context. We're going to find Paul and Barnabas have been in Jerusalem, and they have been delivering this offering to the church there in preparation for a widespread famine that a prophet said was about to, to come. Picking up in verse 25 of chapter 12, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So as we continue on this this morning here, um, we've got our memory verse that I want to keep hitting, I think, just about each week here. 1 Corinthians 11.1, which is, say, say it with me, guys, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I think we're going to see some really cool examples today of Paul imitating Jesus. Um, Philippians 1, for to me, 121, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then the overall series kind of big idea that we're going to have throughout the time. Am am I in the way of this, guys? Paul modeled a life surrendered to Jesus Christ for us to follow. So with those things in, in mind here, we want to get right into the text of verses 1 through 4. We're going to take it a chunk at a time here this morning. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a member of the court of the Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them 
and sent them off. We'll stop there at verse 3. Now, one of the things we see about this church at Antioch is pretty interesting, is that they are truly a multi-ethnic church with multi-ethnic leadership. Uh, just the names of the people tell us a lot. Niger was uh, perhaps from uh, Nigeria, but he was definitely a, a man from Africa with black skin. We would know that about him. Uh, the, the, the man from Cyrene also was from Africa. We've got other people here coming from, um, well, we know there's going to be some people there from, from Cyprus as well. And so Barnabas himself, we're going to find out, was from, from Cyprus. And these people, I'd, I'd love to give a whole message on the multi-ethnicity of this church, maybe another time. But these people were fasting, and they were praying together in corporate worship. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to the congregated church, saying, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And immediately then the the church responded to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and they laid hands on them, and they sent them off. Again, we refer to this as Paul's first missionary or first church planting journey. And the, the account of this 18-month trip is encapsulated in about three pages of Acts chapter 13 and 14. So let's pick up in verse 4 and continue on through like verse 7. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, there, there are a couple of things I just want to point out here about Cyprus at this point that are, that are of note. And one is that in Acts 11.20 tells us that the church in Antioch that we just are reading about had members who were from Cyprus. And so the members of that church most likely had some extended family still living back in Cyprus. So here they were in Antioch of Syria, See if we can get the map up there. Yeah, map. Um, so they were in Antioch of Syria, the starting point, and we see the, the solid red line there. They go down and they arrive in Cyprus at Salamis, which is on the northeastern eastern coast there, and we're going to see that they're going to cross all the way down into to Paphos, uh, crisscrossing pretty much the entire uh, little island nation there of, of Cyprus. But... Not only were members of the church in Antioch from Cyprus, but Barnabas, we know, was from Cyprus. Back in Acts chapter 4, when we first introduced to Barnabas, we find out that this guy sold a piece of property, if you'll recall, and he took all the proceeds of that property and he laid them at the apostles' feet to use for the church's needs, however they saw fit. And so that, that was Barnabas, son of, son of encouragement, and we were told that he was a Levite, which is one of the priestly clans from the Old Testament. We're also told that he was from Cyprus. We also know that Barnabas' nephew was John Mark. 
And so John Mark was probably had a family back in Cyprus or originated there probably as well. We know now that John went with them. That's John Mark, the guy that is picked up in Jerusalem on their way home from delivering the offering. John Mark goes with him. At least he starts out with him. That'll be a part of the story as it continues on. Now, one of the things that I think we see from here in this intentional missionary journey that is not started from the Jerusalem church, actually, but it started from the, this multi-ethnic church in Antioch of Syria, that, that the gospel tends to travel on the rails of relationships, in particular, kinship and friendship. I'm curious, how many of you guys, when you came to Saving Faith, how many of you it was through the ministry of a family member? Anybody have a family member share the gospel with you? How about friends? Was there anyone who came to faith in Christ here this morning that didn't come through the witness of a family member or a friend? It can happen. It can happen talking to a stranger on the street. It can happen by going to an evangelistic crusade or a meeting. But even when you go to those evangelistic meetings, you're usually taken by a friend. Uh, you don't usually just happen to walk into those things on your own. So the gospel runs along the rails of relationships, in particular, kinship and friendship. So as we're praying about how we can witness and how we share, those are the first two places we look. Kinship, friendship. Now, <clears throat> The missionary team arrived on the eastern side of the island, and they began to preach in the Jewish synagogues. For verse 6 tells us, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, and we, we, we look at the map here, and we see that it started off at Salamis, went across the whole bottom uh, region of the island, got over to the city of, of Paphos there, um, that's about 90 miles. That's, that's the whole journey. That's about how long that would have been for them to, to travel. And this idea of going through is another word Paul uses back with Philip when he went through an area. And the idea was that they're actually preaching as they go. So they weren't just kind of, you know, getting on with their caravan and, and moving as quickly as possible. But they were stopping probably town to town as they went along there to preach the gospel. Um, <clears throat> upon arriving in Paphos... The, the missionary team encountered two men that are specifically mentioned by name. We're going to spend some, or most of our time on one of those men, and that's the first man that, that Luke describes here for us. Luke tells us, let's see, oh, yeah, got too fancy. Um, Luke tells us that this guy, we've learned a few things about him, that he was a, a magician, that he was Jewish, and that he was a false prophet. And he's called by two names. <clears throat> Verse 6, we find him as being Bar-Jesus. This Bar is a prefix that means son of. And in Hebrew, we'd have Ben would be son of. Uh, Benjamin, right, is son of the south or son of my left hand. It's the idea of Ben being the son, Bar being the son. So Jesus here could, would be Yeshua. It would be the idea of the Savior. So his name literally would be the son of the Savior. And then Alemus is a second name we find for him in verse 8. We're not exactly sure what Alemus means, but some linguists believe that it has been derived from an Arabic word meaning wise or learned. Because he was a prophet, because he was a magician, people were calling him wise and learned. The second man that we're introduced to 
His name's Sergius Paulus, and you're going to see Paulus, and now from this point on, pretty much the Apostle Paul becomes Paul. He's no longer going to be called Saul. But Sergius Paulus was a proconsul, and that is a type of governor that was appointed by the Roman Empire. So this was a Roman colony. It was governed ultimately by the Roman Empire, who appointed Sergius Paulus as the proconsul or governor. So he, he was not only a man of power, but the scripture tells us that he was a man of intelligence. Now, if we look back in Acts chapter 8, we, we see that Peter went to see what God was doing in Samaria with Philip. And he said, I've heard all these things about what's going on there in Samaria. And he just wanted to go kind of check it out because he couldn't believe that things were good happening in Samaria. How were these people coming to receive the gospel and receive the Holy Spirit. So Peter, Peter goes to check things out. And during that, that trip, he in, encounters a man who was a magician. And that man's name was Simon Magus. And Peter denounces this man. And then later in chapter 19 of Acts, we're going to see seven brothers who are trying to use Jesus' name as a magical incantation to cast out demons. And you recall, they didn't have a relationship with Jesus, and it did not end well for them. The demons spoke back to them and said, well, we've heard of Jesus, and we know Paul, but who are you? And beat them up, and they ran away beaten up and naked. So uh, what Luke is trying to do here is actually tell his dear friend Theophilus, to whom he's writing and dedicating both his gospel and the book of Acts as a sequel, that Christianity has nothing to do with magic or sorcery. It doesn't have anything to do with astrology. It doesn't have anything to do with necromancy. It doesn't have anything to do with casting spells. In fact, it's the furthest thing from magic. It's about a person who is much more powerful than any magic that the dark arts have to offer. So as we get now to Acts chapter 13, and we see this magician the third time, three times in Acts. This is the second of the three events where Luke talks about a magician actually being put in his place. We find out that he's a magician, and that means that he cast out cast spells that he conjured up spirits from the dead. We find out that he was a false prophet. He told the future, but he didn't tell it in the words of God. He was Jewish. We know that. Well, how can you be Jewish and do that? He wasn't being purely Jewish. He, he was being Jewish, but he was adding other things to it. He, he was adding magic to his Judaism, which the Jewish law prohibited magic and sorcery, and it was worthy of the death penalty back in the Old Testament. So Luke wants Theophilus to be absolutely assured that Christianity is nothing about magic. It's much more powerful. Now, the fact that Bar-Jesus, this guy whose name was son of the Savior, was with Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, sort of assigned governor of, of Cyprus, probably indicates that he was one of his counselors, being this wise and learned man that he was. So let's read verse 8 in chapter 13, just to pick up on this. But Elimus the magician, for, all, for that is the meaning of his name, Oppose them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. In verse 7, we found that, that uh, Sergius Paulus had called for Paul and Barnabas to come. He had heard about their preaching. He had heard that something was going on, that they had a message that was worth listening to. So he said, I want these guys to come, and I want them to share their message with me. So he wanted to hear the gospel. 
but Bar-Jesus did not want him to hear the gospel. So we find these two divergent reactions, oppositional reactions to the preaching of the gospel, because if the governor came to trust the power and the wisdom of the gospel, the governor would see that Bar-Jesus didn't have as much power and wisdom as he purported to have, and he was likely to lose his position of influence. So with that in mind, let's pick up at verses 9 through 12 of Acts chapter 13. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, at Bar-Jesus, and he said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and funny, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is a powerful, powerful words, powerful passage here, because Saul, we want to make sure we catch this. Saul was not just losing his cool. Saul, Saul was not just blowing up at what was going on here. This was not some sort of just angry tirade. The scripture tells us very, very clearly that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was being governed by the Holy Spirit in this moment when he spoke out. And he was saying, you call yourself Bar-Jesus, the son of the Savior, but I tell you, you are not even related to the Savior. You don't know Jesus, the Messiah. You're trying to stand in the way of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. So instead of Bar-Jesus, you should be called Bar-Satan. You're a son of the devil. He said, you are not really a wise one. You are an enemy of righteousness. You're full of villainy. You're full of deceit. You're not wise. And as a Jew, particularly as a Jew who calls himself a prophet, you know what God's word says about prophets. Prophets are to make straight the paths of the Lord, but you're making crooked the paths that are straight. He says, you are not who you say you are. So as, as we think of our memory verse here from 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am imitators of Christ, we see a couple of ways that, that Paul seems to be carrying that out, that he is imitating Jesus even in his harsh words. Because Paul's harsh words to this magician and false prophet sound an awful lot to me like Jesus' harsh words to a group of religious leaders back in John chapter 8. We'll look at John 8, uh, 39 to 40, and this was Jesus addressing this group, and a lot of the people had believed in Jesus by this time, and others didn't. He was his lightning rod. Again, we see constantly these two different kind of reactions to the gospel, some people who really want to embrace it, and some people who really want to reject it. And they answered him, these are the religious leaders to whom Jesus was contesting, and these religious leaders answered him, they said, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. 
Remember, Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness because of his faith. Well, these guys claiming to be the sons of Abraham weren't doing that. And so Jesus picks up in verse 40, 44, and he says, you are not children of Abraham at all. You are of your father, the devil. And, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, and he's the father of all lies. So Jesus calls these guys religious guys. He said, you guys are sons of the devil. Isn't that exactly what Paul just called Bar-Jesus? He said, you call yourself Bar-Jesus, but you're actually Bar-Satan, you're son of the devil. So the big idea today, guys, it's a little, it actually can, can, can be a, a little frightening. And that is that Paul imitates Jesus in warning that, that we can call ourselves children of God, but still be children of the devil. I, I really don't want anyone to be doubting their salvation here this morning if you are indeed saved. Uh, if you have not come to that point, though, where you have been made a new creation, where, where you have had a spiritual rebirth, where your mind has become in the process of being transformed because that Holy Spirit that emboldened Paul, the Holy Spirit that was at work here in the church at Antioch, has entered into your life and taken up residence in your body as his temple, then I, I want you to be uncertain. I, I want you to be fearful because that is the right place for a person to be who is without Jesus Christ. Is looking at an eternity without Christ, it's a scary piece. So it's possible to say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a son of God. You know, I've been bought by Jesus and still be deceived. Now, we see some parallels here again with Paul in that story uh, of, of Bar-Jesus and Paul's own experience. It says, the Lord then disciplined Bar-Jesus by making him blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Very much like what happened to Saul earlier that Hunter talked about in Acts chapter 9, right? Remember when Saul on the road to Damascus, he was blind for a number of days before Ananias came and took the scales off of his eyes. See, we see through the power of the Holy Spirit here, Paul imitates Jesus by applying a temporary blindness to Bar-Jesus as Jesus the Messiah had done to Saul. And Bar-Jesus needed to be led by the hand, just as Saul had to be led by the hand 13 years earlier on the road to Damascus. In, in their encounter with Bar-Jesus, Paul and Barnabas confronted a problem that has been a problem, and it will continue to be a problem that is a deadly snare for God's people. And that, that's where I'd like to camp out for just a few minutes. And we, we're going to call that, that problem, it's got a technical name that we call syncretism. Syncretism happens when we're trying to have a reconciliation of different beliefs, when we're trying to fit two things together that don't exactly jive. And it comes from the, the, the root word sin, S-Y-N, which means together or to be joined with, plus a second element of uncertain origin that would have this idea of, of cretism. Some people believe that it's the idea of the, the nation of Crete, and we know that Cretans were, think, uh, were called liars, 
And so the idea is this would be that you're, you're joining together things with lies. Uh, this other part of the second word, root, could also just mean a mixture. So you're joining with a mixture of beliefs. Now, when the Israelites in the Old Testament worshipped Baal and the Asherah, they, they were practicing syncretism, and God was not at all pleased with it. He said, you know, you're, you're not acting like my children here because you're not worshipping me exclusively. See, they, when they worshipped the Baals and they worshipped the Asherah up in the high places, they did not stop worshipping Yahweh. They still considered themselves Jews and worshippers of the Lord God Yahweh, but they were not worshipping him exclusively. They were adding on to him. So it was Yahweh plus Baal, Yahweh plus the Asherah, Yahweh plus these other fertility gods and sex gods that were going to be in the neighboring nations and peoples around them. And when, when that happens, they diminished their true allegiance and faith in Yahweh the Lord. Now, for, for the Christian, syncretism is declaring faith in the Lord God, but putting something else alongside of him. So for, for the Christian, syncretism is declaring faith in God and, and then letting someone or some other thing other than the Lord God come alongside us because we're not sure God's going to give us what we really want. And so we're going we're gonna to give some allegiance to these other things that we believe God may not really want to give us. I'm not saying it's wrong to trust other human beings. I'm not saying it's wrong to trust leaders or to have faith even ideals. But the problem is when we allow our allegiance to people, to things, to ideals, or even to a nation, to compromise our allegiance to God, we're in danger of syncretism. We're putting our trust and our faith in something other than the Lord God, Yahweh, hoping that it's going to give us what we want, that we're not sure he really will. Syncretism is obvious in certain places around the world where we see people worshiping more than one God, like the Gentiles we're going to look at in Acts 14 and 17, where they have this pantheon of gods like the Hindus who just have thousands and thousands of gods and they try to, they worship these gods and it all seems to fit. They try to fit it all together. Like the church in Haiti who goes into a, a mass at church and comes out on the steps and burns things of offerings to, for the voodoo. That's clear, obvious syncretism, trying to blend together two worldviews, two systems of faith that don't actually go together well. One of the two is going to be diminished by the other. But, most of us aren't in danger of bowing down to worship some handcrafted idol or we're not going to worship another man or a woman. Our syncretism is not quite so obvious. See, we're, we're in constant danger, though, of giving allegiance to beings and things other than the Lord in a way that diminishes our allegiance and our obedience to him as king. Now, Paul and Barnabas knew that, that many of these Gentiles that they were trying to introduce to Jesus through the preaching of the gospel would have been happy to receive their gospel message that, yes, Jesus is a God who forgives you. Jesus is a God who offers eternal life. They would have, said, they would have been happy to have Jesus do those things for him if they weren't careful to avoid the syncretism. 
They, these people would have said, oh, yes, I want eternal life. Yes, I, I, I want to be forgiven of the wrongs that I've done. I don't want God to be angry with me. I want his anger to be taken on somebody else. I accept this Jesus. But then they would have just put him all alongside their other gods in the pantheon. See, they would have just added Jesus to all the other stuff that they had going on beforehand. Some of them would have likely said, well, can, can I have an image of this Jesus? I want to set him between my love God and my war God and my fertility God and my son God. And I'm going to put him right up there in a position of honor in the middle of all those guys. That, that's syncretism. That, that's saying, yeah, I'll take Jesus' forgiveness. I'll take his eternal life. But when it comes to having wealth that I want, when it comes to having the health that I want, when it comes to having the, the, the kind of lifestyle that I want, I can't really depend on Jesus to give me those things because he, he didn't promise to give me those things. So I'm going to pick some other allegiances over here that are going to help me get what I want. I'm going to hold on to Jesus here, but not exclusively. Our syncretism is not so obvious, but it's every bit as real. I, I wrote my doctoral dissertation about Christian syncretism in America. And my, my thesis was that Christians in America have frequently syncretized the gospel with their allegiance to Autonomous individualism, the idea of the autonomous individual. Autonomous means auto, self, namas is law, kind of a law unto ourselves. And, and that means that I have agency to do what I want to do, and nobody or nothing should be able to stand in the way of my autonomy. So they, they've tried, as, as Americans, I think we've tried to reconcile the gospel of Jesus as sovereign master that he is on one side, with the belief of American idealism and, and individualism that, that says, I have the right to be the master of my own life. And you see, those two things are not compatible. One or the other is going to eat the other one's lunch. Either Jesus is going to be master and I'm not able to be master, or I'm going to claim some rights to be master, and then he doesn't really become master. See, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, as someone has said, he's not Lord at all. So we say stuff like, sure, I'll follow Jesus. We don't say this out loud. But I'll follow Jesus until he tells me to do something that goes against my will. I'll follow Jesus unless I'm confident that what he wants me to do is not in my best interest or the best interest of my family, is if we know the difference. The, the sense of autonomy, the, the right to run our own lives as a law unto ourselves, is pretty much written into the DNA of our country, which I love dearly. And this, this is one of my, I think, the greatest documents in, that's ever been written. But from the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. But brothers, because of the way sin corrupts the truth, our twisted understanding of rights endowed to us by the Creator can ironically cause us to have a stronger allegiance to those rights than to the one who gave us those rights. And our ideals, as good as they are, can become our idols. 
See, we need to have a renewed mind that Scripture talks about. It's a new creation in Christ. Have our minds renewed so that our idea of life, our understanding of liberty, our understanding of the pursuit of happiness lines up with Jesus' understanding of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and not the American dream. And what does Jesus say about life? See, we want life the way we've always wanted it, and Jesus doesn't always promise to give us that. Jesus in the gospel tempers our right to life when he says in Luke 9.24, for whoever would save his life must lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That, that smacks right in the face of autonomous individualism and my right to be the master of my own ship. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So we profess that we worship Jesus, but when he gets in the way of our liberty, we can become syncretists to pursue liberty more than we pursue Jesus, who is where liberty is really found. In John chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The corollary to that is if the Son does not set you free, you'll never be free. Luke 9, 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny your personal liberty and autonomy and follow me. Sometimes when he's getting in the way of our liberty, we don't say it out loud, but inside, in our minds, and sometimes in our actions, we say, don't tread on me. We demand our freedoms. And often, what you and I call freedom that we're demanding leads us to become enslaved to our own appetites. We declare allegiance to Jesus, but when he says he's more concerned about our holiness than he is about our happiness, sometimes that doesn't sit too well. So when, when obeying God's word is costly, and like loving your enemies, like, like uh, giving generously, whatever it is, they say, hey, now this is, this is getting a little bit more than I think I'm ready for, we can become syncretists. We still profess faith in Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life, but we add on other allegiances that are going to make us happier, allegiances that, get, that give us the, what we think we truly want out of our lives, but allegiances that get in the way of truly living for Jesus as Lord. So Jesus knew the night that he was about to be arrested, the night he instituted the Lord's Supper, that last night of his life when he celebrated the Passover, Jesus knew that within a matter of hours, he was going to be arrested and crucified. And he was trying to prepare his disciples for that reality. That's when he did the, you know, I'm divine, you're the branches. He had that lovely discourse there. But let me just tell you that on that night, we know that Jesus sweat great drops of blood as he wept and, and cried out in the garden of Gethsemane. And when he was telling his disciples about what was going to happen, that he was going to go away from them, Jesus was not a happy man. The disciples were not happy. Nobody there was happy. What does Jesus say in John 15, 11? 
These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus doesn't promise us happiness in the moment, but he promises a joy that can be full because that joy is rooted in him and the work he's done on our behalf. You and I would not be here today if Jesus had chosen to save his life, if he had chosen to maintain his freedom, if he had chosen to pursue his own happiness. Jesus told the religious leaders that they were not the sons of Abraham they claimed to be because their failure to give allegiance to him actually made them sons of the adversary, sons of Satan. Paul tells Bar-Jesus, the culturally Jewish magician, false prophet, that he was no son of a savior at all, that he was a son of a devil. In Matthew 7, 21, we see these chilling words from Jesus where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So it takes us back to the big idea that Paul imitates Jesus in warning that we can call ourselves children of God and still be children of Satan. Again, I don't want anyone to doubt your salvation, uh, but I don't want anyone to think that they're just fine with God when their allegiances are going in a different direction when they're being governed by a master, whether that be themselves or some other thing or person or ideology, rather than being governed by the Lord and Master Jesus Christ. And if Jesus or Paul were here this morning looking at our lives, looking at our allegiances, uh, examining our, our understanding of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, would, would he see our allegiances and our ideals as lining up with, with what Jesus' ideals are? Or would he see our allegiances and ideals really siphoning off our allegiance to Jesus? Whose sons would Jesus say that we are? What, what reassures you that you are a redeemed child of God? If you don't have that assurance, whether you're here this morning in person or whether you're, you're watching from online, if you don't have that assurance of salvation, let's talk about that. Hunter, Max, myself, Wes, any of us would love to sit down and talk with you about how you can have an assurance that is rooted in truth, not just rooted in hope or feelings of something that happened long ago. But you can say that your allegiances to Jesus are primary and exclusive. The end result of this whole passage here, we find, is that Sergius Paulus, the governor, believed in Jesus. And it's interesting that it wasn't the punitive miracle that Jesus, that Paul put on Bar-Jesus there of blinding him. That wasn't the motive for Sergius Paulus' faith. It says he came to believe in Jesus because he was astonished at the teaching he had heard about Jesus. May the Holy Spirit of the Lord make us astonished at the teaching of Jesus. And may he receive our full devotion and allegiance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word from your word this morning. We pray that your spirit would remove anything that I've said that would have been unfaithful to the text. Lord, we pray that anything that is true to the text, that your spirit would want to drive into the depths of our soul, that we could not shake it, that we could not justify or rationalize it. But that, Lord, we would turn to you to find you to be our life, our liberty, and the source of all joy.
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast. I hope you will join us again next week as we continue learning lessons from the life of the Apostle Paul. For more information on the Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash men's breakfast. Have a great week. Thank you.